Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Backroads, released March 13th, 1981. It was written by Gary DeVore, directed by Martin Ritt, and released by Warner Brothers. Gary DeVore based the script on his own 1975 short story, he and producer Ronald Shedlow spent two years developing the script before bringing director Martin Ritt on board. Once Sally Field was attached to the project, it was brought to Donald Murch, VP of CBS Theatrical Films, for consideration as one of its first projects. CBS Theatrical Films didn't last, though, closing its doors in 1985 after just 11 titles. The only ones I recognized from the list were Dinner for Five, which later became the title of a John Favreau interview series. <laughs> Better Off Dead, the only title other than Backwards that I've seen, and Elaney, which we discussed earlier this year as the third collaboration of Peter Yates and Steve Tesich after Breaking Away and Eyewitness. I got so confused when I saw the CBS logo come up because... They didn't make films until the I, early 2000s. Well, I was going to say, I was on one of the very first CBS films. Yeah. <laughs> and I was so confused. I didn't know that it existed before this. Yeah. Their their second attempt, uh, they resurrected the feature film division in 2010, and that stopped down again in 2019, apparently. CBS yeah, it didn't films last was long. also dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you worked on one of the first two, which was the backup plan. Yeah. Yeah, was it was was it extraordinary measures before that? Was the that? first one, yeah. yeah. And then Beastly, I think, was right Beastly, after. Beastly, and there was one more that was like like all like three or four of, of the films that we were working on were all shooting at the same time. But honestly, I scrolled through the list and it's it's nothing. Yeah, the, the, like the movies were a complete waste. There was nothing on the CBS Films lineup that was a worthwhile film that made any kind of a splash, other than stuff that they acquired. Yeah, the only worthwhile thing on that film was you getting J Lo to laugh. Oh, it, yeah, at your rap party? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, th- I, I liked Inside Lewin Davis, um, which is a fun Coen yeah. Brothers movie. And it's a CBS film technically, but it was one that was shot already and then they acquired it. So oh, okay. it was the stuff where they bought a finished film to distribute. Yeah. It's the only good stuff on their list. Nothing they produced themselves seemed like something I'd want to see. Sally Field and Tommy Lee Jones reportedly disliked each other on set, though Fields mentioned in an interview with Ellen DeGeneres that Jones did apologize for their disagreements years later, and eventually the two would receive supporting actor and actress nominations for their work together in Spielberg's Lincoln, though neither one. Sally Field passed on Raggedy Man to make this. She was replaced in that film by Sissy Spacek, who won the Best Actress Oscar immediately after her uh, for Coal Miner's Daughter last year. Also with Emily Jones. Right. This was Sally Field's second film with director Martin Ritt, who directed her Oscar-winning performance in Norma Ray in 79, and the two would come together again for Murphy's Romance in 85, a film I have not heard of. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like I should have heard of it. but The title comes from a line that was removed from the film, where Field's character says something along the lines of, we're going to hit the back roads, or something like that. 
but they took that line out and it's still called Backroads. Fine, whatever. <laughs> we open on a city street with a low angle shot of a woman's legs on the sidewalk. She stands by herself until a man's legs enter frame and she drops a cigarette and follows him down the sidewalk. They head directly to a hotel under the title card Backroads. Women lead men in and out of hotel rooms. We follow one of the women home to her personal apartment where she undresses in her room and we look at all the photographs of a young child taped up around her vanity. We move down the street to a bar where people are playing cards, but again, we're only seeing disembodied hands throwing in bets and smoking cigarettes. And I guess the game is just high card withdraw. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're playing it seems war. Like they're playing war. For, <laughs> but they're only playing for like quarters, and so right. it's a pretty fast moving, like I win, you win. We can hear Tommy Lee Jones' voice among the gamblers, but he runs out of cash and then he leaves the table for a moment. Upstairs, Sally Field dresses in her work clothes and jewelry before heading downstairs. In the bar, we see Tommy Lee Jones' hands sneaking around collecting change out of people's tips or out of their payments for things until he has enough to buy his way back into the game. Suddenly, he's winning. We see Sally Field's character at the bar with a margarita, and she seems to sense a man behind her and turns around to find Tommy Lee Jones staring at her. I think it's kind of weird to have him, you know, be a gambler yeah. based purely on, like, luck of the draw. Yeah. Like, I... I don't know. I think people who have gambling habits that are based on chance are very strange. Like, I get people who are obsessed with, like, poker, like something mm-hmm. where you develop skill and you you feel like you have control An over of the game. Yeah. But I don't understand people that get obsessed with, you know, games of chance. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me because it's pure probability how much you're going to win. Right. But there's people who spend, you know, all their money sitting at a slot machine and that's a game of chance. Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah. <laughs> i don't get either kind of gambler well i, I don't mean, get a person think, who's like sometimes i win at this game i'll bet a bunch of money on no, it but i think i i think that there is something to be said for being like i have a skill and i'm gonna bet money that my skill is better than your skill at this and so i think that i think that there's something to that psychologically but the fact that like it's just pure probability i i'm gonna win x number of times that doesn't i don't understand why people get obsessed with that yeah Fields tells Tommy Lee Jones that her price is $20, and he thinks she's worth more than that. She asks him to pay for her drink, and he does it with change. She assumes that he's poor and asks him to meet her outside. He steps outside and stands next to a luxury convertible that just parked to give the impression that it's his car. Her demeanor changes, and she excitedly drags him to the hotel, and we cut immediately to their post-coital embrace where he admits that he doesn't have any money, which I think makes this rape. (laughs) If you're agreeing to pay a woman for sex and then you don't pay her for the sex, then that's rape because you're taking sex from the person. Yeah, I guess. I I don't know. It's not consensual if... Well, it was consensual, but he still owes her. I don't know. It seems like rape to me. I, I mean, it's it's bad practice on her part because traditionally yeah, you, you would have them put the money, money out on the nightstand, on the nightstand yeah. ahead of time. But if you saw the fancy car and you just assume, well, he definitely has the money. Yeah, but I would, you know, like, I don't think any prostitute is just like, he's good for it. Yeah. <laughs> just um, trust him. Yeah, unless it's a regular. <laughs> Not she that just... I would know about. <laughs> <laughs> you see the arrangement that I have. <laughs> she jumps up to redress in case she still has time to bring in another customer tonight, while Tommy Lee Jones apologizes and asks her about the kid pictures around her mirror. She chases him out of her apartment with a wooden spoon. Later, he finds her on the sidewalk again, 
and invites her on a real date, promising the $20 he owes her. She tells him she's not interested in so many words. Listen, Klaus, you're a beggar, you're stupid, you smell, you're ugly. You expect me to believe I'm ugly? Hell, I'm not ugly. Hey, sugar, you on date? How much? Sally Field's character, who we will eventually learn is named Amy, steps away from Tommy Lee Jones' character, who we will come to know as Elmore, in search of another customer. Amy realizes, just as she gives the new client her price, that she's accidentally soliciting an undercover police officer. She thanks Elmore for getting her busted, and Elmore punches the cop to rescue her. Amy makes a run for it, and every single person on both sides of the street immediately scatter, because nothing legal is happening in a whole yeah. square mile. In fact, when they round the corner, uh, Amy tells another girl, get out of here. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, she, and, and she no doesn't questions. even question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Elmore runs with her, and for some reason she lets him into her apartment again. Amy empties her room into a suitcase and runs out of the hotel before falling flat on her ass on the sidewalk. Elmore collects her things and starts walking. Where are you going with that? My place. Place is a strong word. It looks like he's staying in a junkyard. I can't even tell if there's a ceiling. Well, and except that there seems to be overhead lighting. Yeah, there, there, and he doesn't. He's he's essentially squatting. They, right. The owner of this facility or business does not know that he is there living off of his own food. Yeah. He tells her she can stay as long as she likes, even though it's not even his property to offer her. She asks where she's supposed to sleep, and he points to a car seat bench. You wake up feeling like a pregnant teenager. In the morning, Elmore is passed out on the table in the middle of the room as Amy sneaks out. We see her waiting outside of school to see her son dropped off in the morning. He notices her, but he heads towards class, and she follows him the length of a fence until he disappears into the campus. The woman who dropped the kid off notices Amy and follows her down the street in a car before issuing a stern warning. Ricky, the kid has mentioned a woman who watches him and he's scared of her. The woman says she needs to leave Ricky alone, or her husband has said that he will call the police on her. Amy never responds to the woman who gets back in her car and leaves. And alone, Amy breaks down and runs down the street sobbing with a suitcase in each hand. When Elmore arrives at his job late, he learns he's been fired and won't be paid again until Friday, even though he plans to leave town before then. Elmore heads to a boxing gym run by M. Emmett Walsh, where apparently he has a locker that he's been renting, or he doesn't have a locker that he's yeah, been renting. Yeah, he's been evicted from his locker. Turns out his locker is no more as he hasn't paid the rent in years, and all his shit is just in a box on a shelf that says Elmore Stuff, basically. When he gets back to his shitty place that night, he's shocked to find Amy here again. They make plans to leave town together. The next day, we see them riding in the back of a rickety trailer. Elmore is riding it smooth, but Amy looks like she could fall out at any second. It's kind of driving me crazy watching her ride in the back of this thing. Because she's just like, doing, like, somersaults for no reason. Yeah, it looks like there's plenty of ways to sit down and just find a, a spot to, co- you know, cozy up into. Yeah. And she's just, like, trying to squat and hover and hang on. And she's But she does bouncing. that a couple other times over the course of the movie, too, yeah. where she her legs are constantly getting thrown up over her head. Yeah. I mean, it's done, obviously, for comedic effect, yeah. but I find it just annoying to watch. Yeah. Later, in a torrential downpour, Elmore tells Amy how great California is. Nobody's stopping for them until Elmore points to a passing car and says, Have a wreck! Have a wreck! And at precisely that moment, the car pops a tire and skids to a stop. Amy and Elmore look at each other incredulous. It's a family, and they offer the hitchhikers a ride in exchange for changing the tire. The father driving has his arm in a cast, which I'm assuming is the only reason he didn't just fix right. the tire himself 
As they ride along the freeway, the driver tells them how great this country would be if the cops realized it was their job to kill more people, specifically more black people, but he hints at other races he would be happy targeting. During this lovely speech, the man's son is eyeballing Amy's purse and steals a smaller coin purse out of it. In a diner later, Amy realizes that her money has been stolen. She had like $200 cash in this thing. Mm -hmm. Despite just learning that they have no money to pay with, Elmore orders them both an extra cup of coffee. He says, now that they're living off their wits alone, they'll need the caffeine. Yeah, but also it buys them a little bit more time. Right. Amy, playing the character of an angry wife, accuses Elmore of cheating and bringing home an STD, and Elmore plays right along with her, chasing her out of the diner as they trade barbs. Down the road a ways, Elmore has his thumb out again when the waitress from the diner comes skidding up with a gun hanging out of her passenger side window. Elmore gives her a 20 and she pulls away, but he shouts for his change. <laughs> and amazingly, they turn back around and toss his change into the street. And it looks like it's between 12 and 15 ones that they threw back at him. Like it's right. a lot of money they gave him back. Well, diner food's not that expensive. I'm just surprised that they would bother to give him anything, let alone three quarters of the money they just took, when they should have just left with the 20. Elmore tries to scoop them up from the road until he's nearly struck by a car and dashes out of it. Amy goes after the last of the bills and comes much closer to dying, but seems to care less, and Elmore can't help but be amused at her willingness to die for pocket money. They manage to hitch a ride with a young sailor all the way to San Diego, Amy lies that Elmore is her cousin so they can get further with this guy. They come to a raised bridge, and the local sheriff is telling people that they can park just on the other side when the bridge lowers again. The sailor says that they're just passing through, and the sheriff warns him that if they don't join the local celebration, which is free, that he will arrest them for being crazy. Yeah, I I was really confused. I rewound this scene like two or three times, and I was like, is he telling them they can't cross because the bridge is up? And they have to stay on this side, and then no. and then they have to join this party or, or else? Yeah, no, he's literally saying, no, it's a great party, and it doesn't cost anything. So if you try and leave town, I'm going to pull you over because you must be crazy. Elmore sleeps in the car while Amy and the sailor go on a fairground date. Amy's date with one sailor turns into a date with five sailors, and they all get wasted together. Eventually, well, not intentionally. Yeah. These guys are a bunch of hooligans that are trying to make their way in on this guy's date. Right, but her date doesn't seem uh, like he's dissuading it enough. Well, yeah, but there's four of them right. and one of him, and they're all sailors, and they're probably going to kick his ass if he tries to stop him. Or if he doesn't. Yeah. Eventually, things take a turn, and the sailor giving them a ride gets the shit kicked out of him while another sailor named Spivey tries to have his way with Amy. Do we remember another time where we had a nautical Spivey on the show? A nautical Spivey. Mm. What? <laughs> That's the closest, the closest reference I could get. I'm trying to think of like a, I don't know. a seafaring Spivey. What is it? Spivey Point. Is that the fog? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was, try- <laughs> I was trying to like, how can I, how can I associate a landmass with the coast? There you go. That works. Amy gives the man a swift kick in the nuts. And Elmore pulls up in the car. The sailor kid is robbed of a fat wad of cash and wants to get it back, but leaves with Elmore and Amy. He tells them he won the money playing pinball. Pinball. Yeah. I'm a wizard. What? Boy is a wizard. (laughs) Elmore is very amused by the correct terminology for a pinball expert. Pinball wizards are the predecessors to modern competitive gamers. 
Elmore decides to bet money on the kid in a local game even after admitting to Amy that nobody is as good as they say they are. A crowd forms around the contest at a local arcade, and the kid loses right away. <laughs> and oh, Elmore like, says, <laughs> "Yeah." Elmore says, in his line of work, they'd break his face if he lost. What business are you in? I'm a fighter. <laughs> when was your last fight? I ain't had it yet. Amy tells him that she's going to go get the money back with her body, and this is when he realizes that she's a prostitute, and he starts laying into her while she walks down the street. You know something? Now that I look at you, you look like a goddamn whore. You look like a goddamn fucking whore. Listen, boy. A whore is a 16-year-old with a bad reputation. I am a hustler. The kid won't drop the argument until Elmore wrestles him back toward the car, and the pinball wizard drives off without them. Camped out on the side of the road for the night, Amy confides in Elmore that she put her son up for adoption when she was younger, but she never stopped thinking about him. She bribed a nurse at the hospital where he was born to learn where he ended up, and since then she's sort of stalked the kid. She left town because she was worried that down the line she might have kidnapped her son back. Sooner or later I'd have done something real dumb and messed him up. I mean, I feel like she already has. Yeah, but it, if she never saw him again, it would be okay. Because he'd probably forget at this yeah. point. Yeah, but that's pretty messed up of her to follow him at yeah. school multiple times. It would be worse if she had said something about being his mother on any of those visits. That's true. Elmore tells Amy about a previous marriage. They married the week that they met and broke up when he wouldn't quit boxing for her. He says that his ex-wife lives in Provo, Utah now, and Amy advises him to look her up. In the morning, Amy struggles frantically to wake Elmore in time for them to catch and ride a passing train. They manage to grab onto the side of the train, but an upcoming shack that's close to the tracks is about to scrape them off the side, so Elmore drops Amy and then jumps himself into a deep mud puddle beside the track. This whole sequence was really frightening. Because they're the real actors yeah. on the side of a moving train. The, yeah. That train is so close to getting like, I was like, oh, I don't like this. I don't yeah. like this at all. At a bus stop that night, they need 20 bucks fast for a ticket. Amy tries to peddle her wares again, but Elmore snags the customer on their way to a bed and knocks him out cold. I did like that before he punches the guy, he says, What the hell are you doing? Set them goddamn teeth, you're gonna bite your tongue off now. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> then he knocks him out. Like he already felt guilty about hurting the guy and right, giving right. him a tip to not make it worse. On the bus, Amy gives Elmore a manicure, something she intends to do for work in California. Elmore tries to tell her that people don't change fundamentally, and she moves a few seats away from him. They make most of the way to California and then part ways for a bit in a desert town. Elmore sells blood. Amy tries to find work doing nails, but doesn't have much luck. Although, to be fair, her method of application is just to stare directly at a customer <laughs> getting a manicure through the front window, not even in the store, and repeatedly tapping on the window with her nails like, look, I also have fingernails. <laughs> Give me a fingernails. No. No. She never even goes inside the place, and the manicurist tries to hide from her creepy gaze. Amy quickly realizes that she is dressed just like all the other prostitutes in this town. She finds a corner <laughs> and leans against the wall until a woman who seems to be the boss of the other girls notices her it's and gives her a, a nasty look. It's called a madam. I was just going to say that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, they, it's not 100% obvious yet that she is the madam of this neighborhood. I think it was fairly obvious. <laughs> it could have just been like, oh, great, another prostitute. They're ruining my neighborhood. Later, it becomes perfectly clear. It seems like she'll have to fight for this corner, though. 
Elmore tries to find work entering fights. We see Amy crying in a hotel lobby as she writes a letter. Elmore meets with the guy in charge of the local fights, Mr. Tezio, who reluctantly makes a deal with him. If Elmore can get the guy across the bar to agree to a fight, Tezio will write him a check right now. Elmore tosses a pitcher of water in the other guy's face. And it's like, there, he agreed to a fight because yeah. he's chasing me out right now. The woman who shot Amy the nasty look earlier confronts her directly and says, if you want to work, I'm easy to find. At the end of the night, Amy and Elmore wind up at the same diner. Elmore buys her a meager meal. Where'd you get the money for that? I sold some blood. They didn't even ask me where I got it. <laughs> I like that line. After quote-unquote dinner, they head back to Elmore's room together. He tells Amy that he thinks they stand a better chance together. He's going in for his fight tonight and expects to raise enough money by lasting at least 10 seconds into the first round to get them to Los Angeles. At the fight later that night, a brawl breaks out in the audience over a stolen seat before Elmore even makes it into the ring. Elmore's competitor kisses his baby son on his way into the ring. Elmore is booed before touching gloves with Marvin the Fist Blights. The crowd is chanting Marvin's name and Blights punches Elmore's corner man before the fight even starts. The corner man tells Elmore that Marvin is always late out of the corner. When the bell rings, Elmore blasts across the ring and cracks Marvin on the jaw just as he's turning around. Marvin spills over the ropes and cracks his head on his own corner man's head like they, they smash yeah. foreheads into each other before falling backward into the ring and it's a knockout. When Elwood gets back to his hotel room, he is mugged for the winnings. The local pimp lady is here and warns Amy again about working without her approval and they assume that this money that he came home with is money that he got for pimping her out. Mm. They steal the letter that she was writing in the hotel lobby. It was a letter to her son that she hasn't mailed yet and they read it out loud in the room and make fun of her for caring about her child. But the letter is basically her saying, hey, I'm your mother and I feel bad about what I did and I wanted you to know that I exist and that I love you. Um I mean, I don't think they're making fun of her for it. Well, they're laughing as they read it. Yeah, I guess they are making fun of her. But it's it's more just like you're an idiot yeah. for doing this. But the characters come across as just unbelievably cruel. And the madam tells her that if she loved her son, she wouldn't confuse him with a letter from a second mom. And then she burns the letter in front of her and claims to love her son more than she does. Well, and, and at first I wasn't certain about the letter uh i i couldn't remember if she had written it and i thought it was a letter from the kid oh that would be much worse yeah, yeah no, and, that's horrible yeah but but once i once i remembered that it was a letter that she wrote and I was she like, wrote it earlier today it's not like yeah. she's been carrying it around for a long yeah, time exactly this isn't like the letter that sawyer carries around on lost it's 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 like nothing yeah you literally borrowed this paper and pencil to write the letter downstairs mm-hmm. earlier today this is just a symbol it's a metaphor maybe yeah sure a metaphor The madam leaves Elmore bruised on the floor and Amy crying in bed. The next morning, Elmore talks him into a big rig for a ride to Los Angeles. He gets a job doing dishes in exchange for a bed, and the truck leaves at 7 a.m. At the end of his shift, Elmore brings a taco upstairs to Amy in their room, and Amy announces that she's returning to Mobile. She's giving up on the Los Angeles dream. Not having seen the film before, I assumed that she would get pregnant here with Elmore and then return to Mobile and change her name to Gump and then give birth to a kid with messed up legs because the Gumps live in Mobile, Alabama. Yeah, and Sally Field was her mom. Yeah, same, same actress, yeah. But yeah. in the movie, they changed it to Greenbow instead of Mobile, so it makes less sense, my joke. The two of them argue back and forth about who's the biggest loser and who could survive alone between them. 
Amy storms out and starts begging truckers in the bar downstairs for a ride east, but everyone seems headed west. Elmore comes in and drags Amy to the microphone in the corner to introduce Amy to the crowd as a professional for anyone whose wives aren't enough. Amy takes the mic and starts taking bids from the room. It's basically the last scene from Groundhog Day, but way more disturbing. Because he's just talking about sex. It's not just a date with this person. Yeah. Elmore tells her that California might not even exist, and then he walks out, leaving her to fend for herself in this mess. The winning bidder tries to take her away for $30, and when he won't take no for an answer, she calls out to Elmore to save her. The man punches Elmore to the floor and shoves Amy down too, but Elmore recovers and lands a couple gut punches before he is tossed across the room again. Elmore bounces back again and again to finish this guy off, and Amy is ecstatic to see him win for once. Elmore asks the band for a dance song and then walks Amy to the dance floor. The next morning at 7 a.m., they very nearly miss their ride to Los Angeles. I guess he doesn't take them all the way because we end on the two of them hitchhiking again. Yeah. You know, I still owe you $20. You're good for it. The end. Our director here was Martin Ritt. He directed HUD, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Molly Maguires, The Great White Hope, and Sally Field's recent film, Norma Ray. Writer Gary DeVore wrote The Dogs of War, which we covered earlier in our 1981 season. He's back after this for Raw Deal and Running Scared in 86. The Running Scared with Gregory Hines yes. and, and Billy Crystal. That's yep. the one. Yep. <laughs> The music here was from Henry Mancini, who wrote the Pink Panther theme and the Peter Gunn theme that kicked off the first season of this show. He was the musical director for the 53rd Annual Academy Awards, which we just discussed at the end of March. He also scored the Molly Maguires for director Ritt. Last year, he also did Little Miss Marker and A Change of Seasons, and we'll hear his work later this year for SOB, Condor Man, and Mommy Dearest. Cinematographer John A. Alonzo, we just saw his work on Vanishing Point, and later he lends his Harold and Maude, Chinatown, The Bad News Bears, Black Sunday, and Norma Ray for Ritt. In 1980, he was the DP on Tom Horn, and later this season we'll see his work on Zorro the Gay Blade. He also has DP credits on Scarface, Overboard, Steel Magnolias, Meteor Man, and Star Trek Generations. Editor Sidney Levin, he edited Mean Streets for Scorsese, a rare non-Schoonmacher film for him. He also cut Nashville, Norma Ray, and Holy Moses before this. Sally Field played Amy Post. I don't remember her last name getting said in the whole movie. Yeah, I guess just for reference. In 79, she received Best Actress for Norma Ray with the same director. Between the films, she appeared in Beyond the Poseidon Adventure and Smokey and the Bandit 2. We'll see her next in Absence of Malice later this season. And they shot so close together that she basically flew directly from the set of this to the set of that. Yeah. Great film. Tommy Lee Jones was Elmore Pratt. So far, we've only had him in Coal Miner's Daughter, and after this, we won't see him again until Savage Islands in 1983. He's in Men in Black, The Fugitive, No Country for Old Men. You know Mr. Jones. David Keith played Mason. He is not Keith David. We had him last year in Brubaker, and later he'll play Jack Murdoch, the father of Ben Affleck's Matt Murdoch in Daredevil 2003. Miriam Cologne played Angel. I think that's the madam. In 1983, she plays Mama Montana, the mother of the titular Scarface. She also appears in the first couple episodes of Better Call Saul as the grandmother of Tuco Salamanca. Michael Vigazzo played Tazio. He's better known as Frank Pentagelli from Godfather 2, for which he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Unfortunately, again, De Niro was in the same film and won his Oscar. Last year, he was the police chief in Alligator, and I will cover his work 
in the 1980 title Hoodlums with a belated minisode later this season. Dan Shore played Spivey, the rapey sailor. So weird, <laughs> weird cartoon. <laughs> Spivey the rapey sailor. Spivey the uh, he plays sailor. Billy the Kid in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's right. Do you recall the other two historical figures that we've had so far from Excellent Adventure? Uh, Socrates. Nope. No Socrates yet. <laughs> Do we have Beethoven? No, Beethoven, we had, we had. We had Lincoln, right? We had Lincoln. Do yeah. you remember what they were in? I do not. <laughs> Lincoln was in Private Eyes, and Beethoven was in Fort Apache, the Bronx. Uh, Billy the Kid here is also Ram in Tron, and we'll have him later in 81 for Strange Behavior. This is our fifth episode for Mr. M. Emmett Walsh after Cold Turkey in the 70s and Brubaker Raised the Titanic and Ordinary People for 1980. Barbara Babcock played Ricky's mom. We just covered her work in a belated review of The Black Marble, wherein she plays the lady whose dog is being ransomed. Ralph Seymour played Gosler. He was Zig in Underground Aces, one of the unnecessary aces, we decided. <laughs> there were so many. <laughs> He's Francis's accomplice in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Royce D. Applegate played the father. Uh, he has a writing credit last year on Loose Shoes. He was also an alligator last year. And he was Chief Crocker on Sequest. That's right. Crocker. He's also in a lot of Coen Brothers stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, he... he he just appears in a lot of stuff. I just remember when we talked about Loose Shoes that you went off on his Sequest appearance. Oh, yeah. Sequest is the best. Billy Jane played the boy thief. Uh, he played Brett Camber in Cujo. Eric Lenouville played the pinball wizard. He was Purvis in Baltimore Bullet. He was a TV director from as far back as a bunch of St. Elsewhere, Doogie Hauser, Gilmore Girls, Lost, Psych, CSI New York, and then more recently Lethal Weapon and Chicago Fire. Was Lethal Weapon a TV show? It was, it was for a while. Yeah. Oh. With uh, Damon Wayans Jr. And then the guy who played Riggs got fired off of the show. And they replaced him with, I think, Sean William Scott or something like that. That sounds terrible. <laughs> I don't know. Brian Freshman played Blights, the boxer that Tommy Lee Jones goes up against. He was Barf from the Blue Team in Midnight Madness last year. He's also back for Disney's Amy a few episodes from now. Henry Slate played Grover. He was in Little Miss Marker and Herbie Goes Bananas last year. Tony Ganyos played Bartini. He was Baker in Die Hard 2 and Meat in Porky's. His character was Bartini? That's what it says on IMDb, Bartini. Oh, not bartender? He's a... <laughs> he was a very small bartender. Oh, very small, yeah. <laughs> no, that doesn't make sense because Meat in Porky's is a huge guy, isn't he? Um, I have not seen Porky's in many, many years. He used to play on Comedy Central all the time. Bob Hanna played Vernon. And we had him last year in Coal Miner's Daughter and Carney. Those are all the credits I had for this one. This is uh, a sad follow-up to Norma Ray for this director and this actress. Yeah. Because there's really not anything to the story. I don't think... I think the problems they had on set come through in the performances because they don't have any sort of chemistry with each other. Um, there's really nothing to this film. I was getting very emotionally frustrated with this film because... They kept just having like worse and worse and worse and worse things happening to them. But then like they sp they fall into a mud puddle, and then the next scene they're they're wearing clean clothes. I was yeah. like, wait, what? What happened? How but did also, this happen? Their fights are all totally arbitrary too. Yeah. Like 
what they are on the bus and he's literally saying like uh, you know i don't i don't know if people really change that much and she's like i'm gonna sit over here and then when they get to the next town they literally part ways like that was them breaking up yeah, yeah. and it's like what happened that that the fight didn't get brutal enough for you yeah. guys to stop talking to each other and then at the end of the movie they're like all right we got one more night and then we're gonna get to where we're going and she's like i'm not gonna do it anymore it's like yep. out of nowhere. There's no impetus for this. There's there's no catalyst for anything. And and the and the whole argument of like like neither of them can survive on their own. It's like well, that's what they were doing before they met. Yeah. Yeah. Like are you are you two infants? Yeah. Because it seems like you're both adults. You're you're yeah. You're not you're not young people. Um. And and I thought for sure after this this madam robbed them that they were gonna do some kind of scheme or do something to get that money back. Right. And. And I was like, just just give me a win. I needed a win. Yeah, this is the second time in a week that you've lost a massive wad of cash to yeah. just someone taking it away for no reason. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 not being cautious at all with their with their money. And and then I guess the win of the movie is him winning that fight. Cause yes. Because he, he he has this argument about he says you know you don't know the difference between winning a fight, losing a fight, or taking a dive. Yeah. Um. And and you know he he says that he he'll do all three, and he's also he's that whole argument comes right on the heels of him having won this fight yeah. and won a bunch of money, and she's just saying, "Well, you're a big loser, and you lose all your fights, and you never win." And it's like I literally just won a bunch of money, <laughs> and it's like I don't know why you weren't there. It doesn't make sense to the plot that you weren't there because you should have been there, but because you weren't there then that means that you didn't see me win so we can have this argument here. But if you had been there, it would be silly of you to pretend I never win my fights. Well, and I feel like in these kinds of movies, you're, we're supposed to have them be a complement to each other. And right. I, I just don't see how they complete each other. They have the way. same problems. Yeah. yeah. Occasionally, they're on the same page, and those are the most enjoyable parts of the film. Like when they do the fight in the restaurant. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of did like their little bit at the very end. When, when they're up at the bidding in front of the microphone. Yeah. And she's kind of like going back and forth. And they're going back and forth with each other. And it's like, all right, this is this is kind of nice. But it's also gross because they're talking about selling her body to one of right. these random dirty men. And it's like they don't even need the money right now. They're literally just, I thought he was doing it to insult her. Yeah. And it's like, this is weird. This is an uncomfortable scene for them to be bonding in. But yeah, I think for me, this is probably a thumbs down. It's not necessary viewing for anybody. No, I agree. There's there was nothing about this story that had to be told. Thumbs down. Uh, is it down for me? I got nothing more really to add. Richard, where's this going? Letterboxed. Um, I have this going at number twenty, which puts it below All Night Long and above Earthbound. I also have it at exactly twenty, which is below Ruckus and above Pinball Summer for me. You're not going to believe this. <laughs> 20. For <laughs> the 20, which is for me below Maniac and above Earthbound. All right. So we all have a very similar opinion as far as movie, though. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's everything for Backroads. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Fun House, which IMDb describes like so. Four teenagers visit a local carnival for a night of innocent amusement. They soon discover, however, that there is nothing innocent or amusing there at all. We leave you now with a trailer 
for the Funhouse. Who will dare to face the challenge of the Funhouse? Who is mad enough to enter that world of darkness? Something is alive in the Funhouse. Something not alive like its father. Something better dead. Something that has the form of a human, but not the face. This better be good. It's gonna be great. Something that feeds off the flesh and blood of young innocents. Something that tonight will turn the funhouse into a carnival of terror. Pictures. The Fun House. It's a carnival of terror from Toby Hooper, the director who terrified you with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre.